If you're visiting with us today, we're happy and honored to have you, and we invite you to come back anytime you can be here with us and worship with us at McCoynesville. story is told about a, a father and his young son who were walking down the street one day, and the boy asked his father how electricity could go through the wires that stretch between the power poles. And the father said, I really don't know. I never knew much about electricity. As they walked on, the boy asked his father, what made thunder and lightning happen? Father said, I'm not sure. I wondered about that myself. As they kept on walking, the boy continued to ask questions to his father and inquire about many different things. But the father couldn't answer any of his questions. So finally, as they were close to home, the boy said, Dad, I hope you didn't mind all those questions. And the father said, Not at all. That's how you learn. <laughs> now you know the son's questions deserved an answer from his father. Even if the father had to do some studying to answer them. This morning I'm beginning a new sermon series that I'm calling Questions that deserve answers. And unlike the father in that little story, I, I want to answer some important questions in this series that relate to the Christian faith and the Bible and the church. I'm not going to pre-announce all the subjects but I've got a pretty good idea of what they're, what they're going to be. So today we're going to begin the series with a sermon on an all-important question. And it's a question that's really the basis for everything that we are and believe and do as God's people. It's the question, is the Bible truly the Word of God? Now, I would venture to say that probably every person here this morning would answer that question right now with a yes. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But the question is, why do you believe that? Why do you believe that? If somebody challenged your faith and asked you to explain why 
you believe that the Bible is the Word of God, could you give a logical, convincing answer? I hope the sermon today will help us to be able to do that. According to a new Gallup survey that was just released last month on July the 6th, according to that survey, only 20% of Americans today believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God. Just 20%. One-fifth. How sad is that? And that's a record low since they started asking that question back in 1976. The survey also found that a new high of 29%, almost one-third, say the Bible is nothing but a collection of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. According to Gallup, the change in attitudes about the Bible is not surprising because a number of indicators show a decline in overall interest in religion among the U.S. population. And the survey went on to say that, that how Americans see the Bible it's very important because the Bible is often used as the basis for policy positions on moral issues like abortion. As you probably know, there are many other books or writings that many people in the world look to for spiritual guidance and direction in their lives. Besides the Bible, there is the Islam holy book called the Quran. Today there are more than two billion, two billion Muslims worldwide that believe and practice Islam. There's the Book of Mormon that falsely claims to have a divine origin. Some people look to the writings of Confucius or to L. Ron Hubbard, who began the Church of Scientology. The Hindus falsely believe that the Bhagavad Gita is the source of eternal truth. Today there are about one billion Hindus worldwide. So what sets the Bible apart from all of these and all other books and writings? Can we be sure, can we be sure that the Bible is unique and different from all the rest? Can we be sure that the Bible is the Word of God? 
Well, the answer is yes. We absolutely can. But before we look at the evidence this morning, let's look briefly at what we mean by the term, the word Bible. You know, the word Bible is found nowhere in the actual text of the Bible. Our word Bible comes from a Greek word, biblia, which means books. And it later came to mean the holy books. The Bible is a collection of 66 different books divided up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 39 books make up the Old Testament that was written between 1550 B.C. and 400 B.C. 27 books make up the New Testament that was written over a span of 50 years. The Bible contains history, poetry, prophecy, biography, songs, laws, and letters. So it's a collection of different kinds of literature. The Bible was the first book ever printed on a printing press. It's the best-selling book of all time. Parts of the Bible have been translated into over 2,000 languages. There are over 30 different English translations of the Bible available today. Although some of those are more reliable than others. 24% of Americans own at least five copies of the Bible. Now, with that little introduction in mind, let's look at the evidence this morning that supports the fact, the fact, that the Bible is the Word of God. The evidence for the authority of the Bible falls into two major categories. There's internal evidence and there's external evidence. So this morning, let's begin with the internal evidence. Internal evidence that the Bible is truly the Word of God. First piece of internal evidence is the Bible's claim of divine origin. You know, the Bible claims to be divinely inspired and to contain the very words of Jehovah God. Nearly 4,000 times in the Bible we find expressions like, Thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul speaks plainly to Timothy about the Bible being inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the text in 2 Peter chapter 1 that, that Dale read, the Apostle Peter explains something about the inspiration process when he wrote this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God inspired 40, 40 different writers over a period of 1,600 years to complete the Bible. So the Bible's own claim of divine origin is the first piece of internal evidence for the authority of the Bible. A second piece of internal evidence is the unity of the Bible. As we just mentioned, the Bible was written by 40 different people over a period of 1,600 years. And yet, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and it presents a singular message or theme all the way through it. Now, a miracle like that can only be explained by there being one divine author, Jehovah God himself, who was in control of all those human writers. I want you to look at the screen and think hard about this. Imagine, imagine taking just 10, 10 present-day writers and asking them to write their viewpoints on one subject or ask them to write parts of a story that will later on be put together. The only catch is that they can't consult with each other and they won't have each other's writings to work from. Now, can you imagine how different, how different each of their writings would be on any subject? And there's no way they could put together a unified story that makes any sense. And yet, even with 40 different writers, that's exactly what we have with the Bible. We have a singular unified message or theme all the way through it. Those 40 different Bible writers lived in different times. They wrote in three different languages and they lived on three different continents. The Bible writers came from many different walks of life, including kings, philosophers, fishermen, 
tax collectors, doctors, prophets, and shepherds. The perfect unity of the Bible that's organized around the one theme of God's redemption of mankind, that could never have happened except by the hand of God. So the unity of the Bible is another important internal proof of the Bible's divine inspiration. A third piece of internal evidence is the fulfilled prophecy of the Bible. There are hundreds of prophecies of future events recorded throughout the Bible. And some of them were written hundreds or even a thousand years before their fulfillment, when they actually happened. No other book in history has dared to predict the future like the Bible has. And you know, the prophecies in the Bible are very, very specific and accurate. There was a Frenchman named Nostradamus who lived back in the 14th century. And Nostradamus is often said to have made hundreds of prophecies that have come true. But you know his prophecies are very vague and unclear. His symbols and language can be taken to mean many different things. But that's not true with the prophecies of the Bible. You know, one of the most convincing prophecies in the Bible was made by the prophet Isaiah that we're studying this quarter in the Sunday morning adult Bible class. The prophet Isaiah foretold that a king named Cyrus would defeat and destroy the mighty Babylonian empire and subdue Egypt along with the rest of the rest of the known world. And that same man, Isaiah said, would decide to let the Jewish captives in Babylon go free and return to their homeland of Judah without any payment of ransom. Now, Isaiah made that prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Isaiah made that prophecy 180 years before Cyrus carried out any of those actions. And he made that prophecy 110 years before the people of Judah were taken off into Babylonian captivity. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was used by God to accomplish those important tasks. Even though Cyrus did not know Jehovah God, he was not a Jew. He was not a believer in Jehovah God. In other words, even though Cyrus was a pagan king, he was used as an instrument in the hands of God to accomplish God's will for the people of Judah, 
which led indirectly to the coming of God's anointed Jesus of Nazareth. There are over 300 prophecies made about the Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus. Those prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus came. And they were things that he could not have fulfilled just by knowing about them. For example, the prophecies about Jesus include the place of his birth, Bethlehem, the tribe that he would be from, Judah, how he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, how he would die, that his hands and feet would be pierced. He would be crucified between thieves. So the verifiable record of prophecies fulfilled is another very convincing proof for the inspiration of the Bible. All right, let's look now at the external evidence that the Bible is truly the Word of God. First piece of external evidence is the Bible's indestructibility. The Bible is the most well-known book in the history of the world, and no book has been attacked more than it has. Doubters and skeptics have tried to rid the world of the Bible and destroy it. For example, in AD 303, the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered all Bibles to be burned, but that effort failed. A French writer named Voltaire bragged, it took 12 men to start Christianity, and he said, one will destroy it, talking about himself. Voltaire failed. Voltaire said, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book, only found in museums. A hundred years later, Voltaire himself was dead, and his house was bought and used for the printing and distribution of Bibles. A famous 19th century atheist named Robert Ingersoll said this, In 15 years I will have this book, the Bible, in the morgue. Well, 15 years later, Robert Ingersoll himself was in the morgue, and at his estate sale, a preacher bought his desk and spent the rest of his life writing sermons on it. The famous American revolutionary writer named Thomas Paine, who was an atheist, wrote this in 1795. He said, Fifty years hence the Bible will be obsolete and forgotten. 
So how wrong was he? Many, many atheistic leaders and dictators have tried to keep the Bible out of their countries, out of their nations. But it's not possible. The Bible today is available in nations like China and Russia. Because they have failed to rid the world of the Bible, doubters and skeptics have tried to discredit and destroy the authority of the Bible. You know, the Bible has gone through every kind of scrutiny possible, from archaeology to science to philosophy. And yet, in spite of all the attacks, the Bible has proven itself over and over. And so the Bible's durability and indestructibility is an important part of the external evidence supporting its divine origin as the Word of God. A second piece of external evidence is the Bible's reliability. Many doubters and skeptics would say that the Bible cannot be trusted. Because the original manuscripts, those documents actually handwritten by men like Matthew, Luke, Isaiah, Paul, and others, those don't exist today. What the doubters and skeptics would say is that all we have are a few copies of a few copies. So how can we really and truly know what the original Greek and Hebrew text actually said? And that's a valid question. The original letters and documents, written letters and documents, handwritten by the inspired writers of the Bible, are no longer available today. We don't have them. They crumbled away many centuries ago. But the originals of other ancient writings, like those written by, say, Plato, Aristotle, Caesar, and others, those have also been lost or destroyed a long time ago. We only have copies of all the great ancient writings. So, to judge the accuracy of those ancient documents, those copies, what did the experts do? Well, they look at several important factors, including how close in age they come to the original, how many ancient copies there are, and how close the content of the copies are to each other. And that's really a science of its own. Now, with most ancient writings, there are not many copies available. And the time span between the original manuscript and the oldest copy 
is often great. For example, take the writings of Plato. Seven copies exist, and the closest to the original is 1,200 years later. Take the writings of Aristotle. 37 copies exist, and the closest to the original is 1,400 years later. Take the writings of Caesar. Ten copies exist, and the closest to the original is 1,000 years later. So how does the New Testament compare? Well, we have almost 25,000 ancient copies, and the closest to the original is only 80 years later. And besides that, there is a fragment of the Gospel of John that you're seeing right there on the screen that dates back to about 30 years after the original was written by John. It's believed to be the oldest portion of any New Testament writing ever found. Now, the gap between when the Old Testament was written and the earliest known copies is larger than it is for the New Testament. You know, God's Word hasn't always been in the format of a bound book like we have today with the Bible. As far as we can tell, all the books of the Old Testament were originally written on scrolls. Some of you might remember from the Holy Land presentations that I showed pictures of the location where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948. The Dead Sea Scrolls were the oldest manuscript copies of the Old Testament ever found. And they confirmed that the scribes who copied the Old Testament did that, did so with the greatest care and accuracy. The Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts were a thousand years older than the oldest known Hebrew text of the Bible in 1948. And when they compared them to each other, they found very, very little difference. So here's the point of all this. The reliability of the text of the Bible is amazing. And the fact that the text has been so accurately preserved throughout history, that's another evidence of its divine origin as the Word of God. A third piece of external evidence is the Bible's historical and archaeological accuracy. You know, the Bible is historically correct. And nobody has ever proved it to be otherwise. You know, the more we learn about history, the more the Bible is vindicated 
There are hundreds of statements in the Bible which in the past have been said to be untrue by doubters and skeptics, but they have been proven true by archaeology. You know, the kids and the young people here have been studying studying hard on the Old Testament book of Joshua for the Bible Bowl. And our VBS was focused on lessons from that book. One of those lessons dealt with the Israelite attack and capture of the city of Jericho. And the part that Rahab and the Israelite spies played in that. And without spending more time on the details of it today, which I could, the Bible description of the capture of Jericho and what happened to Rahab and her family, the Bible description agrees exactly with what archaeologists have discovered at the site of ancient Jericho. I've been there. I've seen some of the evidence. And that same convincing archaeological evidence has been found in the city of Jerusalem and other places around the nation of Israel. A well-known Jewish archaeologist said this, no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. An expert in Middle Eastern archaeology who was not a friend of Christianity, he said this about the Old Testament. He said, There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the historical accuracy of the Old Testament. A well-known archaeologist and historian said this when speaking about Luke who wrote the New Testament books of Luke and Acts. He said this, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historian, and they will stand the keenest of scrutiny and the harshest treatment. The important thing to realize is that the Bible is historically and archaeologically accurate. And that's important in establishing its trustworthiness and divine origin as God's Word. There's one last piece of external evidence that I want to briefly mention. What I'm going to call the dynamic impact of the Bible. You know the difference that the Bible makes in the lives of those who study it and obey it and apply its message? All of that points to its divine origin as the Word of God. In Hebrews 4 verse 12, the Bible says this about itself. For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
In Acts 20, 32, the Apostle Paul said this, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The Bible's power and authority is unlike any other book ever written. Countless, countless lives have been transformed by the power of God's Word. Drug addicts have been cured by it. Derelicts have been transformed by it. Hardened criminals have been reformed by it. The hopeless have been encouraged by it. Sinners have been sanctified by it. And skeptics have been convinced and convicted by it. You know... Believing that the Bible is truly God's Word is something like farming. The farmer buys the seed, but he may wonder if the seed will produce the crop. Now, he can weigh the seed. He can smell it, cut it up. He can examine the seed under a microscope. But the only surefire test, the only surefire test is to plant the seed and see what happens. Because whether or not the seed produces a crop depends on the condition of the soul. And in one of his parables, Jesus made that very point. In three accounts in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus told a parable that we often call the parable of the souls or the parable of the sower. And in that parable, Jesus compared the Word of God that we have today in the Bible. He compared that to planting seed in four types of soil. Here is Luke's account of the parable in Luke chapter 8. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In New Testament times, farmers sowed seed by hand. As the sower walked through a field, he would throw out handfuls of seed to get as much as possible to take root. But naturally, some of that seed would fall into unproductive areas. 
And that wasn't the fault of the farmer, and it wasn't the fault of the seed. The problem was the condition of the soil. In the parable, some of the seed fell on the hard-packed wayside soil along the side of the path. Now you know some people are like the wayside soil. They hear God's word, but their hard hearts keep them from believing it. They give in to Satan because they will not believe. In the parable, some of the seed fell on the rocky soil. And some people are like the rocky soil. <clears throat> to begin with, they, they hear God's word with great joy and great enthusiasm. But they're never deeply rooted in it. And eventually, what happens? They fall away. In the parable, some of the sea fell on the ground covered by thorns. And some people are like the thorny ground. They hear God's word, but the word is choked out because of all their cares and desires and pleasures and, and things of this world. But in the parable, some of the seed fell on the good, rich, productive soil. And there are those who are like the good soil. They have a good and receptive heart. They not only hear God's word, but they accept it. They keep it. They live it. And they bear fruit. When he explained the parable in Luke 8 verse 11, Jesus plainly said, he plainly said, the seed, the seed is the word of God. So the question is this, which kind of soul are you? Everyone here today of accountable age falls into one of these four categories. Now, most people would say they're the good soul. We're the good soul. But you know, the Bible and our own lives don't support that assumption. In Jesus' parable, three-fourths of the souls were not receptive and not productive. In Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said, Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few, few who find it. Now this morning we've studied a lot of the evidence that the Bible is truly the Word of God. But all that evidence, all that evidence is worthless if we don't read and study the Bible for ourselves and live by it, follow its precepts, 
and use it in our lives every day. But if we'll do that, then God's Word can take root and bear fruit in this life and in the life to come. And then we can be among those few who find that narrow gate. No other book has changed the course of human history the way the Bible has. No other book has the ability to change your life and your eternal destiny, which is either heaven or hell. Through his word, God has come to man with the good news of eternal salvation and deliverance through Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. If you're not a New Testament Christian today, if you're not a member of God's family, the church, then you could respond to God's love today with the steps that we read about in the New Testament cases of conversion. It's what we sometimes call the plan of salvation. Romans 10, 17 and other passages tell us that we must hear the word of God before it can bear fruit in our lives. John 8, 24 and others tell us that we must believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Acts 2, 38 and others tell us that we must repent of our sins. Romans 10 and others say that we must confess the name of Christ. Mark 16, 16 and others say that we must be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. And Revelation 2 verse 10 and others say that we must then live a new and a faithful life in Christ. So this morning, if you need to respond to the invitation of Christ in any way, to confess public sin in a public way or to ask for the prayers of the church or to obey the gospel, Christ invites you to come today. As together we stand and sing.